Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. In November of last year, I attended a symposium on democracy and journalism. It was hosted by a young man named Nick Triano of Unite America. Joining Nick on the stage were two journalists. One was Jessica Yellen, a former White House correspondent for CNN in Washington, D.C. The other was a young man named Isaac Saul of Tangle News, who had a quiet confidence about him that intrigued me immediately. To be brief, this panel discussion was about the future of digital journalism and its importance in a representative democracy. As you will hear during the podcast, Isaac is not only an accomplished journalist, he is also, much to his own surprise, a rising star and entrepreneur in the realm of independent journalism. Isaac began his career at the University of Pittsburgh as a sports reporter for his college newspaper, and his first professional gig was at the Huffington Post in 2013, before being asked to work side-by-side with Ashton Kutcher and his media startup, A+, where he served as a reporter and editor for over six years. He started Tangle in 2021. I hope you enjoyed this young man as much as I did. He's a powerful example of what journalism can be and what it should be. Well, Isaac Saul, thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we met a couple of weeks ago at a, it's called The Summit, which is a conference in Palm Desert. And uh, I watched you up on stage with Jessica Yellen from CNN and Nick Triano from uh, Unite America. And it was a journalism and democracy symposium, specifically discussing the macro of what's happening to both our journalism and our democracy. And I was obviously very impressed uh, with you and your comments and oratory skills. But I think even more so, I was impressed with what you've built, specifically Tangled News. And I want to talk a little bit about that. And that's kind of when I came up to the stage and said, hey, I think you're an impressive young man. I'd love to have you on my show because we at True 30 are doing similar things. You know, we interview people, um, we're into slow journalism, we have no breaking news, we have none of the stuff that, you know, broadcast news does. But our similarities are that we are attempting to understand without agreement. That's what our platform is all about. You talk about educating the other side to both points of view and Tangled News itself uh, as a platform is attempting to do just that. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your unique approach at Tangled News, and then we can get into kind of the origins of where you came from as a journalist and all that. But tell us a little bit about Tangled News. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I launched Tangled three, a little over three years ago now. And initially it was a concept that I'd basically written down in my notebook, which I thought was a really nice resolution to, in my mind, the tension that we see in the mainstream media right now, which is that people go get news to affirm their priors, basically. Mm -hmm. So if you're a conservative and you watch Fox News, 
Um, it'll make you mad sometimes for sure. And it'll get you riled up. But for the most part, you're going to hear a lot of stuff that you basically already believe. You're going to run into a lot of commentary you already believe. And the same is true of CNN and MSNBC, if you're on the left. And, uh, I recognized, I think early on that this was a huge problem, you know, back in 2013, 2014, when the Facebook bubble and the news bubble was sort of just starting to be acknowledged. And so, I've seen a lot of people try and solve this problem. Some just by saying we're nonpartisan and then not being nonpartisan at all. <laughs> Others by, you know, pulling together journalists who are from across the political spectrum and then having sort of like interwork conflict and a lot of, I think, content they're putting out that sort of just like doesn't line up, doesn't match, doesn't mix well. And my idea was really simple. I'm just going to tell you the basics of the story in the most neutral language possible. You know, what's happening? What's this debate? What's this political issue that we have? And then I'm going to give you three opinions from the left and three opinions from the right and my take. And every newsletter, that's exactly what we do. You, you know, you read the newsletter from top to bottom. You're going to run into basically seven opinion pieces, little mini excerpts of editorials. One of them is from me and the other six are from conservatives and liberals we're finding across the country. And then you're going to get a little neutral breakdown of just like a kind of explanatory piece about, you know, what, what is this story? What are the basic facts? Turns out people really like that. Uh, I was not sure what was going to happen when we started this. I was not sure what the appetite was going to be like for this, because if you have any kind of political inclinations and you read Tangle, you're going to run into a bunch of views that you don't like. You're going to see things in there that, you know, make you uncomfortable, maybe piss you off a little bit. But hopefully you're also going to see some perspectives that you relate to that kind of represent your worldview, your perspective. And if I'm not doing that, then like we're failing. So the idea is that we present a diverse enough number of views across the political spectrum that, you know, 95 percent of Americans or politically involved people who are watching what's happening in America. We have a lot of international readers will read our newsletter and they'll see a little bit of themselves and they'll see a lot of the rest of the country and other people that they might not agree with. And we're trying to get people out of the news bubble. I mean, that's the number one goal is I believe that most Americans are not engaging with views and perspectives that challenge their currently held beliefs. And the goal of Tangle is to do that, is to get people thinking more critically about what they believe, why they believe it. And also maybe, you know, hopefully grow a little empathy along the way for some folks who they don't necessarily see eye to eye with. Well, that's awesome. And and do you actually take, because I, I subscribed after I we met in the desert, but do you actually take pieces and parts? Uh, you have sources on your own, correct? That are separate of like Fox or CNN or any of the aforementioned broadcast networks. Do you, do you take any of those sources or where do the actual pieces come from? So three pieces on the left, three pieces on the right. Give me an example of what those look like. Yeah, great question. So uh, I have a library, I would say, of about 140 to 150 digital and print publications that I am just constantly reading, basically. And then tons of podcasts that I listen to. And then, you know, I'll check in and watch, usually not live, but after the fact, 
you know, what did the primetime hosts on Fox News and CNN and MSNBC talk about the night before? Or if I'm covering an issue, I think they may have covered. I'll go look in their archives and see, you know, um, did Tucker do a bit on the Respect for Marriage Act? And if he did, what did he say about it? Uh, so we we take people from across the across different platforms. Sometimes YouTubers even show up, podcast hosts majority of it are, are opinion writers. There are people who are writing opinion pieces that are getting published in various publications, um, traditional, new, heterodox, substack newsletters. I mean, everything. So uh, a huge portion of my job and the people, you know, I have some interns and some part-time employees is we are just like scouring the world for pieces. You know, we we know what the topic is. We have a few days of lead time going into that topic. And we're spending that time just consuming as much content as we can from as many diverse voices as possible. And then we try and pick, you know, six pieces that we think sort of speak to each other, but also represent really strong arguments that might move the needle for somebody if they don't agree with that person and also are kind of representative of what we think is, you know, a, a specific view. So we have no rules about this, but generally... I try and represent what I sort of see in America as like the four kind of divisions that we have, which is like the progressive left, the more establishment Democratic Party, and then sort of the Trumpist right, and the more, you know, establishment, old GOP, Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, et cetera. You should get all four of those people, all four of those groups, some flavors from them in, in every edition of the newsletter that we publish. Yeah, I, I, that's what I really appreciated about that, because I've done the same thing with True 30 in that we talk about liberals and progressives being separate. So it's it's on the right. There you have the difference between a Trump person and a small C conservative. Right. So the, it is those four factions. And I don't know if you mentioned heterodox as far as heterodox Academy, because Jonathan Haidt, I'm a member of that as well. And and so I get a lot of information when I'm reporting on things for the same thing, because I actually want to get the diversity of viewpoint. And that's something he obviously talks about at length with Heterodox Academy and what they're trying to do there. But I think that's a really cool reason that I like your writing. And you're a young man, so you've been in it for 10 plus years, I think. And my my homework, you started out at University of Pittsburgh as a sports reporter, correct? And yeah, that was your that's first right. gig. My and first then gig, yeah. Out of college, I think you went to HuffPo. Was that your first big publisher? Yeah, Huffington Post was the first big publication that I worked at. And I was uh, actually lived in Israel for about six months between graduation and HuffPost. So I was traveling and writing a bit in the Middle East and sending cover letters and pieces I was writing to all different news outlets, pitching stuff as a freelance reporter, uh, you know, writing cover letters, applying for jobs. And, you know, I always tell people, I mean, that the my experience at Huffington Post was sort of like one of the first genesis moments of Tangle for me because not just what I experienced in the newsroom there, but going there and realizing that just by virtue of working there, I was immediately pegged as you know being a bleeding heart lib from the start, from the very first moment of <laughs> well, my yeah. career. Of course, because it's a very left leaning, very liberal, outlet. yeah. 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 And and even more so now than it was back then. I mean, I think they step a little bit to the left every year. Um, but, you know, the reality for me was I was a kid with a English degree who majored in journalism and I applied to 50, 40 different newsrooms 
And Huffington Post was the one place that gave me a job. So I took it. Uh, done. Yeah. 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 They're going to pay me to do what I want. And I think I was, you know, living at my mom's house in Philly, making $38,000 a year, taking a two hour train in New York City every day. Um, you know, it was not like the job I would have chosen if I had the, the pick of the lot, but it was a good experience in terms of, you know, getting getting to understand what it meant to be in a, a real newsroom with deadlines and editors and all that stuff and also experiencing like the forces of being in a place where there's a clear ideological tilt to the news that's going out and like how yeah. that works and and how that sausage is made too which um you know I think a lot of reporters experience all over the country I think even more so now what year were you at HuffPo I was there in 2014 so I would have started very Okay. Yeah, very late 2013 and and then through 2014, yeah. So this was after Tim Armstrong bought it and changed it even more so. So yeah, because I, I come from the ad business. And so we I had a lot of buddies at HuffPo in early 2005, 2006, when they first started, you know, big blogger, obviously, Ariana Huffington being a, uh, you know, very charismatic leader in that area. And so I had buddies that worked there at the time. And so, you know, that was a really unique business model that and you know gawker media and a couple other things that kind of popped in around journalism but they weren't historically journalistic specific to rigor and fact checking and things like that they were actually into articles that could possibly go viral the headlines were really important the engagement by enragement side of things took place so i mean those were big business models that panned out right i mean i think armstrong paid 315 million for huffpo in 2011 or 2012, like memory serves, but it was, you know, in the business world, that was a big deal because these were, you know, brand new by historical standards, publications that were reporting on the news. And to your point, they were not shy <laughs> about yeah, where they leaned, right? It was, it was very partisan and they didn't give a shit about, you thought they were partisan. So that being said, did that have a long tail for you? Did you, when you started your own organization, did people start to look at your writings and say, Hey, you know, this guy's a complete liberal. He worked for HuffPo. I don't believe a word he says. He's complete <laughs> did, did that start to, did that follow you around a bit or? Yeah. I, I mean, a hundred percent. Like, in fact, to bring even more clarity to it, I mean, what happened for me was I left the Huffington Post to go start a new media company uh, with Ashton Kutcher, the actor and um, yeah. VC investor who at the time had just gone through this horrible episode where he had been dragged through the tabloids um, because he had basically walked in on a homicide and he like, you know, he, he, he was like the guy who called 911 discovering this, had this huge traumatic experience and the press basically made like a six month story out of it. And, you know, he was on like the front page of people and all these tabloids forever. And he had this very kind of like visceral reaction of like the news sucks. I want to do something to fix it. Yeah. And he had this idea for like a really high minded kind of upworthy news outlet. We call it, you know, solutions. Journalism is like uh, a school of journalism that's out there. Tina Rosenberg used to be the New York times um, has done a bunch of workshops on it that I've been to. And it's basically like the idea is, let's focus our reporting on stuff that's actually working rather than the people who are breaking everything. Like we don't have enough reporting on the people who are actually doing things that are working, making, having good outcomes for the country. Um, so I left to go work at a plus I was the first, uh, one of the first full-time editorial hires there. And 
we are a totally new brand. I mean, like new logo stuff nobody's ever seen before. Yeah. No, the only public facing thing is Ashton, who is like farm boy from Iowa with very mixed politics. He's like a big gun owner and kind of more libertarian than anything else. And um, yeah, I was writing reporting pieces and also doing some opinion pieces and running our columns and stuff. And we had a ton of exposure on Facebook because of him and people would Google me and it would be like, you know, it didn't matter what I was writing about. It was getting dismissed and sort of downvoted and demeaned because they saw that I had bylines at Huffington Post and they just made a ton of assumptions about what my worldview was. And, um, you know, there's... At that time, I mean, I don't even know how I'd describe my politics then. I mean, I was I was writing sort of like populist political stuff. I mean, I was, you know, smashing Hillary Clinton and talking about how Bernie Sanders would be like a transformative candidate for the party simply because he would like, you know, bring the working class back, which honestly, in retrospect, I think was Depression in a lot of ways, but um, you know, it was I, I wasn't like a, I didn't I wasn't like a party loyalist, and I, I I wrote a ton of stuff also defending conservatives, saying that Trump was going to win in 2016. You know, like saw some stuff I think some other people didn't because of my background, because of where I grew up. And uh, well, Bucks County, <laughs> Bucks County alone will help you with that, right? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in basically the most politically divided county in Pennsylvania, which is the most politically divided state in the country, and yeah. basically the most important state to every presidential election. And so, I've got friends, family, coworkers from all across the political spectrum whom I love dearly for different reasons, and that's just the environment I grew up in. And uh, you know, it was a it was eye opening to realize how long that tale actually was. I mean, it took years, five or six years. I mean, today but, I never hear about it because no. I'm three years into this new project. But yeah, um, it happened for sure, and it took a while to shake it. Yeah, you're about 175 weeks or something into your project, and and so obviously you have uh, plenty of homework to prove. And I, and again, I you know, as someone who reads your work now, you're a good writer and you, you do good reporting. I actually shared, I wanted to share the Brittany Griner stuff because I thought it was such a well-reported piece, but it was a premium piece. <laughs> I couldn't share it with my- That's right. That's the trick, baby. Yeah, that's the <laughs> trick. So it was, it was, and I think that's really indicative of what Tangled is doing a really good job with is that you are bringing an educational component to it, which is cool. And I would imagine, and and I'm sure you have stories on this because I- we did a piece on Ben Shapiro in February, and this was more along some media buddies of mine on my board because we were so impressed, right? This this company came out of nowhere. He started in 2015 with Jeremy Boring, and you know today it's doing $200 million a year in revenue. He's just killing it. And whether I don't agree with his politics, but I'm impressed with him as a business person. And I also don't think he's the antichrist that most of my liberal friends believe. And so we wrote this piece, You know, is Ben Shapiro the most powerful man in news media today? <laughs> got hammered. I got, you know, unsubscribe and you're platforming evil and you're a terrible person and how dare you? And I was like, all right. So we got just crushed on this. And so like any good journalistic organization, we, we continue to dive in, you know, on Daily Wire. We're going to do a couple of different pieces in early 2023. Uh, but I, I share that with you because I would assume that you get that level of venom too when you're writing pieces on specifically, and I don't, some of the homework I did on you guys, I, you, you, I think you have, and this may be old news, but 50,000 plus subscribers now and a pretty balanced mix, you know, 40%, liberal, 40%, you know, uh, conservative. And then obviously the, 
and independents and moderates. Do you have the people on the fringe, you know, the 8% on the far left, the 8% on the far right that just basically say exactly what I just said? You know, go yeah, talk to yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah look, I, I get, I mean, okay, so there's sort of a few components to that. I mean, um, just as a point of clarity, the the balance is more like 40% liberal, 25% conservative, okay. and then 35% who like refuse to identify or whatever, yeah. they're independent. Um, so it's a little bit skewed to the left. I think the reason for that um, is not so much the content as it is that when I'm pitching this to people, you're much more likely to get like an interested ear when you say like, I'm a journalist or reporter who started a politics newsletter from people who are sort of like center and to the left than you are center and to the right. I think um, for good reason, a lot of conservatives are just very untrustworthy of people with my background right now. And that's like an obstacle I'm trying to climb over. I'm actually really happy with the balance of the audience we have. Um, and yes. more importantly, it's good. yeah, yeah. More importantly, the the levels of trust we've surveyed our readers um, is identical regardless of where they ident self-identify on the political spectrum, which is to me is like proof of the product and that it's working. Um, so I get the venom for sure. Um, you know, sometimes it's people who are like, it's their first day subscribing and, you know, they signed up for the newsletter the next day they get their very first newsletter. And it's one of the newsletters that happens where I'm like, my take is a very strong take. Sometimes right. I come down pretty hard on one side or the other. And that can turn people off, you know, um, in either direction. I, you know, I defended Joe Rogan and Spotify when in the midst of that controversy. And I got tons of heat from people on the left who were just saying I was like platforming an anti-vaxxer and all this stuff, you know, unsubscribing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like a lot relate. of, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I got, I literally got emails from people telling me that, like, by defending Joe Rogan, I was killing people. Who literally aren't. killing people. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I, compromised I people were going to die because of what <laughs> yeah. I wrote, because I said I didn't think he should be kicked off Spotify. Yeah. Um and then the opposite side of that is, uh, you know, I wrote about Florida's Don't Say Gay bill and basically said, you know, I think it's uh, really counterproductive and stupid for us to be demonizing trans people and gay teachers in school. And, you know, nothing good has come out of this, you know, pushing this bill through. Nothing good will come out of it. And, you know, then I got the folks here far on oh, the yeah. right telling me I'm like a groomer and I must be a pedophile. And why, how could I write this? You know, so yeah. I run into that. Um, I have a one rule about how I handle that, which is it literally doesn't matter what people say, how angry they come at me. I will give every single one of those people one email where I am like my absolute best self. Like I will write them back and say, thank you for writing in. I hear what you're saying. I'm sorry that this, you know, what I my take upset you or this content upset you. Here's how I think about this story. Maybe you misunderstood this part. I'd be curious what you think about this. You know, I hope you keep reading. And, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to build something that includes people like you in this. And I'd say like 50% of the time that I do that, I get an answer from somebody that's like, oh my God, I didn't think anybody was actually going to read this. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, like I, I literally, like right. they... 
They've been screaming into the void of the Facebook comment section for so long that actually getting bounced back to their feedback is like such a shocking experience. Or they're like, wow, you know what? I had a really emotional reaction to that. And I'm sorry. You know, I appreciate you answering me. That's really cool that you wrote back. Here's what I actually think. And it's like way toned down. And then there's like a dialogue. Um, And then the other half of the time, they're like, no, fuck you, dude. Like, you know, it's um, I'm not interested (laughs) in like your liberal woke trash. Right, right. So, you know, but but I'm like cutting that pile in half pretty regularly by just not taking the initial bait. And I think part of that's the platform. I think newsletters are really intimate. Emails are really intimate, one-to-one. There's no yeah. nobody to perform for, no Twitter audience to get your likes for. It's just me and you having a conversation. Like you can either be a good person or not. Um, and I think that helps a lot. And I also just think, you know, again, people really are, they're not used to being heard right now in our, in our current political moment. And, and a lot of people just want to be heard. They just want their perspective included. They just want to feel like somebody appreciates, you know, why they're angry, what they're upset about, that sort of thing. Yeah. No, we find the same thing. I, I, you know, I have three media guys um, on the, on my editorial board and three journalists. And so we, come from that background and we are convinced collectively that the divide out there is far more toxic online than it is in person and the same kind of thing takes place i got called a douchebag by someone <laughs> for writing for writing this article i wrote an article on uh, hillbilly elegy and it said I, it was a piece that i published about uh, jd vance and i said i liked hillbilly vance better that was the name of the article and and this guy came after me and called me a douchebag. And I wrote a memoir years ago. It was called uh, The Life and Times of a Recovering Douchebag. So in my actual retort, I said to him, hey, you know, I'm not a douchebag. I'm the douchebag. <laughs> so let's just make sure we're clear on this. And I said, so, you know, please just let me know what you disagreed with on the article. Because I the article itself was, you know, I admitted that I like J.D. Vance. I thought that in 2016, he wrote his memoir, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which was well written and it was, you know, heartfelt. And I thought it was just a good book. And he seemed like a good dude. And I'm obviously, well, I, not obviously, but I, I'm a left center guy. And so what I liked about him specifically was that I thought he was the up and coming Reagan Republican that a lot of the small C conservative friends of mine are looking for, myself included, uh, because I think it's a much better balance for our body politic versus the Trumpers on that side. And so it was neat because after I wrote him back, he said, oh, my God, dude, sorry. You know, uh, I was a little emotional that day. And he goes, uh, I loved your comeback. You now have a new subscriber. And so it's almost every time that I come back after someone hits me with some, you know, ad hominem, it it has proven to be very uh, beneficial for, you know, not only me, but for the organization itself at True 30. We, we get actual readership based on that. And I remember I was on the Daily Wire because I spent a couple hours a week reading through their stuff because I like to see what's happening on the right. And I'm obviously very impressed with the organization as a media person. And uh, I, I listened to a Sunday night talk with Ben Shapiro and Ron DeSantis. And it was a really polite interview, full of intellectual dissent. And, and uh, obviously they agree with each other most of the time. But I actually commented because I'm an all access member and I said something effective, you know, as a liberal, I'm not a huge fan of DeSantis and his antics, but this was a really good interview. Good job, Ben. I got a thousand comments within five, 10 minutes, just, you know, and it was, I thought, oh, here it comes. It's going to be brutal. And it was the opposite of what I anticipated. It was like, hey, it's really cool when a liberal admits they don't know everything. If you ever come to you know Florida, I'll buy you a coffee. And it was just <laughs> like tons and tons of this stuff. And I was like, wow. And I shared that with my editorial board just as an anecdotal 
uh, example of, I don't think we're as, is hateful to each other if we, you know, if you just admit, and I think you do a really good job of that too. You admit your bias to some degree, you know, you're, you've, I think you've described yourself as politically incongruent, but it's one of those things where you may be a little more, uh, fluid there that I am. Cause I'm definitely left center and I, and I'll do the same thing. I'll point out, <laughs> you know, the right and I'll, I'll go after Trump cause I think he's just a lunatic and I'll go after the, the, the sides that I think have just taken it too far. MTG is another example. And then on the left, I'll go after someone who, you know, is misrepresenting words, <laughs> you know, that, yeah. so like, <laughs> yeah. no, no, you just made that shit up and that's just inaccurate and you're hurting the cause. And so I hear you there. And so the next question for me to you is this, after three years of reporting as a publisher and as a journalist, how have your personal views changed? Hmm. Have, have, have they shifted one way or another? They move more towards the center more towards one way or the other, because for me, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, 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 I'll share you with my own personal views, but what has taken place with you as an intellectual? Because, you know, you are reading eight, 10 hours a day, every day and writing. And when you read and write, you're activating different parts of your brain. And, you know, you're kind of busting through these, you know, these belief sequences and, and, uh, you know, yeah, yeah for sure. So, um, first of all, I, I think it's been an incredibly transformative experience for me. I mean, I am way more knowledgeable and I think I'm much more critical thinker now than I was three or four years ago. And that was after, you know, six or seven years of running a politics vertical at a, a news outlet that was getting tons of traffic and had, you know, a staff and reporters under me and things like that. Um, th it has been like the most intellectually rigorous period of my life, for sure, okay. way, way more than college or my experience in Israel or my first few years in the business. Um, super challenging, you know, so that that's like just one definite piece of it um i sort of reject the premise of the question only in that i don't really believe there's like a left and right pole anymore and i don't know and, and this really truly isn't a cop out i mean um i, I had a really a, an interview actually that changed my mind about this with a guy named hiram lewis who's writing a book about the myth of the left and right who you would probably have a really good time chatting with and you know, he basically makes the historical case that like there is no left and there is no right. Like we have Republican and Democratic tribes, but you know, 20 years ago, George W. Bush decided to invade Iraq and everybody talked about how he was, you know, lurching the Republican Party to the right. And four years ago, Donald Trump said, I'm pulling all our troops out of the Middle East. And everybody said he was lurching the party to the right. So what does it mean to be lurched to the right? I mean, it's just like it doesn't it, it changes based on, you know, what we want the pejorative to indicate about whatever politician we're talking about. So I really do believe that, like, I, I, when people ask me, you know, obviously I get asked a question about my political views all the time. And I just say, like, what issue are we talking about? Yeah. Um, I can give you a few examples for sure, though. I mean, uh, I think from from writing Tangle, from interacting with a lot of people, uh, my views on gun rights have become more conservative, much less like simple black and white. You know, we need to we need to, like, get every assault rifle off the street in the next two years. Um, I've I've always actually kind of consider myself somebody who is like more pro gun rights than a lot of the liberals I knew. I grew up going to Texas with family who shot a lot. I learned to shoot a gun when I was 14. I actually really like guns. I think they're pretty fun. Um, not a fan of seeing them in cities like New York or Philadelphia, where I live. 
but you know, I, I understand why people like them. So like that, that's something that's, you know, I think my view on that has moderated a lot. I'm much more empathetic towards the kind of conservative quote unquote position on gun rights, um, on something like criminal justice reform. I've like gone even further to the left because I've encountered the arguments to my arguments so much. And they're so wholly unconvincing to me that like putting people in jail is good for society that the police are doing productive work right now in our country, like th- those kinds of things. It's like very, I-, I feel really strongly that, you know, like co- compared to where I was five years ago, I've become a radical on the idea that locking a human being in a cage for five years actually doesn't make them a better person, doesn't help society and doesn't teach them a lesson about whatever they did that was wrong. There are reasons to like isolate people from society. I believe that, but I've like yet to hear a convincing argument that jail does good things for us as a whole or for the person <laughs> who it's happening to. Yeah. Um, so like, that's like a, you know, those are examples that come to mind. Um, free speech and religious liberty, I've gone way right on in the last few years. I was always kind of right of center. You know, I spent time in Israel in a very religious atmosphere. I was learning at a yeshiva for six years or six months, excuse me. I came home with like a really, a much stronger compassion for like um, radical Orthodox religious people and why they viewed the world the way they did and what it meant to to really live that life in an honest way. And um, I think we in America and especially progressives in America are really demeaning and dismissive of religious folks right now. And I think it's because like a lot of people on the left have a caricature of like, you know, the Christian who talks about Jesus, but doesn't actually go to church and just like invokes the Lord's name when they want to get something done politically. Um, and, and increasingly for a lot of reasons as a Jew and what I'm seeing in our current climate also, I'm more and more convinced that like we need to really lean into ideas around religious freedom and protect religious liberty and the practice of religion, which, you know, I always thought like, America is so religious where, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a kind of so rooted in religiosity that like, we don't need to beat the drum of like protecting religious liberty. Like everybody who wants to practice Christianity can do it easily. I still think that's true to some degree, but I've like really had an awakening about, I think how important it is, how valuable it is. The free speech stuff we've seen just in the last four or five years, I think is um, scary to me. It's coming from the left and the right. The left gets a lot of heat for, you know, censorship and things like that. Um, the right's not particularly open to dissent right now either in a lot of ways. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they love to invoke free speech, but they don't practice it as well as they could. And, you know, so those are like, I guess some things that come to mind that like have, have changed for me. And, um, you know, all the time I write, not all the time, but I'd say, you know, five or six times a year, I write a follow-up piece to a story I wrote because of the feedback I get from readers that they, the, the consistency of the feedback and the quality of it literally moves my position on an issue because it's just like, oh, you know what, actually I was wrong about that. And, um, people are so scared to do that. Every time I've done that in my newsletter, the feed, it's like, that's like when I get the best feedback from my readership is when I concede that, oh, I actually screwed up. I think my original take on this was maybe misleading. Here's what I heard. Here's why I think I'm changing my mind about it. And people aren't like, oh, you're a flip flopper. You're like, oh, you're so gullible. (laughs) They're like, 
wow, dude, this is so cool. I never see anybody do this, like admit yeah. that they're wrong about something and change their mind in real time. I still don't agree with you, but it was like super interesting to hear your thought process. Um, and getting that positive reinforcement has made me more open to doing it, which has been a really cool experience for me. Yeah, I mean, you have 75 corrections on your site as of this morning. I think I looked at it before we jumped up. Yeah, the call, but it's, I like that about you as well. And and you answered my question. It wasn't a cop-out. I think that your point, and by the way, I want to pin you later and see if I can get that guy on the show, talk about the left and the right. Yeah, he's really interesting. But I recommend it. I agree with you on that because it's really hard to discern what does it mean to be a, a Democrat or Republican anymore because it's just all over the place. But you answered the question in the sense that you have changed your point of view. So you went further right on certain areas, gun control being one, and went certain left on other areas specific to criminal justice reform. I think that's an example of what I mean. And I think that, you know, even reading some of your articles around Chesa Boudin, for, as someone who lives and works in San Francisco, I was like, oh, I'd like to debate this guy on some of these things. And by the way, reformative justice is something I believe in, because my little brother was in and out of jail and, and uh, rehab and all of those things. So I have a personal place for it. And I actually interviewed Christina Soto DeBerry last week, who is uh, the founder of Prosecutors Alliance. And she was the former chief of staff who hired Chesa Boudin and our current. Um, and so I had a, a wonderful conversation with her about restorative justice. And I didn't debate her on my own personal opinions. I actually just wanted to get her take on things. And she, I think, kind of codified what was really important specific to that, which was, you know, throwing people in prison and solitary confinement and things of that nature for a purely punitive reason doesn't work. And the recidivism rates are 70% after 10 years. So yeah, I'm with you on that. I did disagree with you on the Chase of Boudin piece, uh, just because I've seen too much destruction here. Uh, I think he's gone a little too far with the progressive politics on that area, but you know, we don't need to discuss that. Today. Well, I know. I mean, actually <laughs> what's fascinating about that is the Chase of Boudin piece was one of those pieces that I flip-flopped on. Um, yeah, because, I think you did. That's right. Yeah, like I, I wrote a follow-up to my initial writing because I, I got... That. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, I, I got like over 100 emails from readers of mine who lived in the Bay Area and were like, dude like you're 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 missing it like this is what's happening on the ground this yeah. is what it's like like and like half of them were people who were like i voted for him and then i voted to recall him and like yeah. here here is my perspective and it and a lot of it was like you know if you're looking at this from the national level you're just trusting the fbi data and the police data that like none of this stuff's actually getting reported so maybe on the numbers side it doesn't look as bad but like anybody who actually lives here and spends time here can tell you how the quality of life has changed and it was like there, there were just too many of those emails to be like oh no i'm like sitting here in new york and i totally know what's going on i was like oh yeah. shit i miss this you know um i didn't been to san francisco in five or six years and um and when i wrote the follow-up to that sort of saying that i had gotten some of that wrong the feedback was really positive and like again even from people who yeah. still disagreed with where i landed they were just happy to see that i was like being critical of myself you know no, I mean, that's definitely a piece that I enjoy about your work is that you you admit it when you're wrong. I mean, Rachel Maddow is a little too left for me. I like her a lot. I respect her intellect. Uh, she also had something called misinformation in her day. So when she screwed up on a piece, she would actually put it up on a broadcast, say, I did this wrong. And I always loved that about her because she she could admit when she was wrong, you know, I and mean, you're doing the same thing. And I think that's really cool. So let's just back to journalism as a macro for a second. Have you read the book, Bad News? or heard about the book I, Bad News? By I have not read it, but I've heard of it, yeah. So Bhatia Angersargan, who is the editor-in-chief of Newsweek, wrote this book, and uh, 
I was fascinated by it. And it specifically talked to the bias within our biggest news organizations, the August publishers of the Washington Post, the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, all of the pieces, all of the things that I subscribe to. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so, you know, what in her, you know, there's many things in her thesis, but the one thing she talked about that really jumped out was journalism itself. The journalists themselves have come from a very privileged place. And Barry Wise talks about this a lot, you know, based on her background. Uh, I'm sure you're versed on Barry, uh, but it was one of those things where she said that journalists today have become influencers. And obviously you're not one of these. So I don't be clear to point that out. But if you look at Jonathan Swan and a couple other folks who have, you know, big followings, and there was a memo that she surfaced in her book that talked in 2014 from the New York Times that said, hey, we want you to go out and get your own social graph, develop your own social following, be very active on social media and Twitter, and make sure you bring as many people to your articles as humanly possible. 91% of their demographic is Democratic, right? So they lean pretty heavily left. They've obviously been, you know, the needle on the elections in 2016 was 98% voting for Hillary Clinton. So obviously they have some bias issues there. And she went, you know, I think she did a very good job of kind of bringing these issues to the fore. But my long-winded question here is, what do you think? Did she hit any of these things with accuracy in the sense that a lot of journalists today are writing for a very specific demographic? Have they lost the true fight the power type, you know, curiosity of old school shoe leather journalism? Is that something you see that's rampant or are you something you see is still fringe and that journalism itself is still, you know, on the right track? Yeah. I mean, it's always hard to talk about this stuff, I think, in really broad terms. But, yeah. you know, what, what, what I would say is, first of all, it's true that I think the profession is populated disproportionately by people who come from liberal, democratic, urban backgrounds. Um, a lot of the people who get into journalism school are, are not coming there, you know, transferring from a trade school or from rural America or whatever. It's just, it's just not as common. Uh, you know, I went to the University of Pittsburgh. I was a nonfiction writing major. They did not have a J school there. They had like a, a journalism track. Uh, but you know, Western Pennsylvania, really politically diverse place. There were very, very few obviously conservative people who were in my class at that time. Um, I could spot them. And on campus at the at Pitt, you know, as a whole, you ran into much more, you know, conservative kids who are coming from Allegheny County from the area around Pittsburgh. Uh, but, you know, it, it's just like for all sorts of different reasons, I think it's not a particularly popular track career path for people with more conservative backgrounds. So, Yes, I think that that's definitely true. Um, the audience stuff is really interesting. I mean, I, on the one hand, you know, what what I like to say about the the way that those biases manifest themselves is like, obviously, you go read the New York Times and you read the Wall Street Journal and you read them covering the exact same event. And their stories look wildly different. Yeah. And that that alone is evidence of like, okay, there's something here that is amiss. There's a bridge here that needs to be built. And, you know, for me, that was sort of the, you know, that's very much part of the the reason I started Tangle was like, those are supposed to be the best journalists, editors, newsrooms in the world. They're the highest paid, the most qualified, they're the hardest jobs to get. And they are in terms of the craft, they're the most well-trained, they have the most experience, but they're, they're covering the exact same event 
and they're the first quotes different, the sources are different, the angle of the story is different, the headlines different. So why is that? Like the obvious answer is that those newsrooms are built collectively from the bottom up with with different kinds of people with different political views, different worldviews. They network differently. First person in the door brings in their friend with them. You know, they hire people who are from studied with them at school or were at the same publication they were at before. And it just sort of snowballs. Um, and once you have that, once the newsroom's insulated in that way, then obviously you want the audience to grow. You want people to subscribe. You want people to say you're doing great work. So if you're a New York Times reporter, you know, pegging Donald Trump to the wall for financial crimes is a really good way to get subscriptions, right? <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Blowing up Hillary Clinton's campaign is not. Um, and right. and that and like that's just the reality of it. And I think reporters handle those motivations differently. Editors handle them differently. Newsroom executives handle them differently. I mean, you have to remember the pressures for like what to cover and how to cover it. They come from different levels. Um, at the same time, though, I think the New York Times, you know, which is obviously has the editorial board is obviously very left. Um, and the story selection for the, you know, the even the news team, I think, is clearly left of center. They break news that is incredibly damaging to Democrats all the time. The New York Times did break the Hillary Clinton email story. That was their story. They were the first ones to be like, Hillary Clinton has a private email server and she's probably transmitting classified documents on it. I mean, that story sunk her political career. Yeah. She was like the darling of the party. Um, they've done really, really scathing stuff on Barack Obama and the drone wars. I mean, like, you know, it's not as if they never hit Democrats or don't do great journalism on other people, but there are obvious incentives, you know, traffic wise and stuff to to publish the kinds of pieces that are are more unflattering to the right. So, you know, it's a really hard balance. I don't think it's as simple as people think, you know, even if you're a reporter who's very liberal, um, if you see a Democrat doing something wrong, there's almost like more incentive and more disgust from that reporter in covering that kind of thing, because it's like, they believe this person's supposed to be on their team. They believe this person's supposed to be one of the good ones. And here they are being corrupt, doing something horrible. And they're like more motivated to write that really crushing, scathing, investigatory piece that blows the whole thing up. I've seen that play out in real time. You know, I mean, I've I've seen reporters who are writing about people, politicians that they used to really admire. And there's like so much frustration and angst there because of what they've uncovered in their reporting that they are are much more scathing in their coverage of them. So um, I don't think it's as simple as people think it is. I think it's absolutely true that like the media has, you know, on the whole, in aggregate, uh, at least in the traditional newsrooms, has a, a left wing bent and there's much more liberals who are working there. But the output of that can can vary. And in today's world, the media as a whole is much more balanced than it's ever been because, you know, sure, liberals still own, you know, most of CBS and NBC and the major network stations, I think, have more like a left of center tilt. And then you have Fox News, the most popular show on TV. But if you look at YouTube, if you look at Facebook, if you look at talk radio, podcast, yep, yep. conservatives are dominating. So it's not oh, yeah. it's not um, it's not as if it's it's an unfair fight by any means. So I, I certainly don't think that's a, an accurate assessment of where things are right now. No, I mean, that's a great answer. I think that, you know, for me, I I would agree there's 200 articles a day plus that go out from The New York Times. So I think that the majority of their pieces are, I think, 
done very well. I do believe specifically on multivariate testing, specific to headlines and things like that, where they know which ones, you know, cater best the enragement, you know, engagement by enragement kind of thing. Anger was yeah. the number one mechanism in, in advertising that works. And so I, I do, I, I give credit to her book for bringing that uh, to the discussion, but I agree with you on that sense. I, I think the journalism itself is still uh, doing yeoman's work out there. And obviously we have some bias to approach, which then leads me to my next question is, do you believe that your model, the subscription model is the future of journalism? And I ask you that based on someone who I am a huge fan of Barry Wise and her new, she's called the free press. It was common sense. She's recently rebranded. And she was interviewing Matt Taibbi and Brett Stevens uh, about foreign policy. It was a fantastic debate. I love both of those journalists. And Brett Stevens is actually one of my favorite journalists of all time, and he's a conservative. But I really think he's a wonderful thinker. Much like you, he reports on what he finds. And he'll admit his own bias, but he's, I think, a stalwart reporter, and I really dig him. And he said something to the effect of, well, Barry, this is a shameless plug for you, but I think we need 10,000 more Barry Wises out there to balance the media landscape. And I agreed with him immediately, not only because I'm in the space, but people like yourself who are actually reporting on news with an attempt at objectivity and nonpartisanship and by bringing an educational component to your reporting. I think it's fantastic. Do you believe that subscription models themselves are the future of digital journalism? Uh, I, I think they are a the future of a healthy economic model for digital journalism, for sure. I, I don't know how they couldn't be a part of them. So, you know, from my perspective, um, I'm watching what's happening right now in the media space where, you know, we're seeing layoffs at Gannett, at CNN, at, you know, basically every major media outlet there is, except for maybe the New York Times right now. There's been news in the last few weeks that either they're done hiring or they laid off, you know, 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 workers or whatever. And in normal times for most of my career, a cycle like this, you know, heading into the holidays, downturn, the economy, worries about a recession is like every Friday you are like scared to check your email because layoffs are coming. And and, and most <laughs> yeah. reporters have gone through that. And yeah. I'm in a position now where um, it's like totally out of sight, out of mind to me. Like I have these subscribers I see every day and it's like, Unless, you know, 8,000, 8,500 paying subscribers all magically decide to take the same action at the same time overnight and sink me, uh, it's not going to happen. And it's like, it's way more stable. Um, it's much more predictable. I'm making more money now personally than I ever did as a reporter. I'm starting to hire people and pay other people and all these things. So I think if you're putting out a really good product, it's really healthy. I'm actually starting to launch ads in the free version of the Tangle newsletter, um, which is not something I initially thought I was going to do. And mostly I'm doing that because people who are way smarter and more experienced and have more business savvy than I do have beat it into my head that having diverse revenue streams is a really smart thing to have, it is. you know, as a long-term model. I mean, you'd be somebody who I'd love to pick your brain about, you know, financially building what I'm doing right now. I'm a writer. I'm a reporter. I'm really good at talking to people. I'm really good at politics. I'm really good at writing. I don't know a fucking thing about running a business. So <laughs> I am like, I've been learning on the fly and like, you know, I get invited to stuff now where it's like, because of Tango's success, there's kind of like an, an entrepreneurial component to my career that I'm like one of these people who's gone independent and succeeded. 
And it, I, I don't know. I mean, if I made some good business decisions along the way, it was it was probably lucky. I think the reason that I'm at where I'm at is because the content we're putting out is filling a need and it's something people really want. Um, and so to your point, I think it's the future for people who are filling that need, who are doing something that, that, you know, is missing. I don't think you could go start the New York Times right now and just do a straight subscription model and succeed. You'd have to find all sorts of different ways to make money the same way the New York Times does. The reason Barry's doing so well is because they're producing a lot of content that's hard to find in other places. I mean, they're publishing stuff that that people aren't publishing in other places. She also came into it with her own following, you know? I mean, she was yep. a very controversial figure herself. So she got tons of free media just by creating it. Um, I had like a little bit of a different path in that I didn't really have, you know, I, when I started tangle i had like ten thousand followers on twitter which is something i guess but you know i wasn't barry weiss i wasn't publishing in the new york times i didn't have hundreds of thousands of people reading my stuff every day it was tangle that sort of popularized me in a lot of ways so um i've had a little bit of a different experience but i love the subscription model i think it's really really awesome to see independent people succeeding um you know in some ways i guess barry's a competitor but when I saw the free press relaunch and read about their numbers and the money they're doing, I mean, I was like pumped. It was to me, that's just like proof that there is a need that, you know, the the traditional press isn't filling. That looks like an opening for me. I mean, I as little as I know about business, I do know, you know, competition is a sign that you are providing something that a lot of people want. And um, so it was really encouraging for me to see that she's building what she's building because I hope to hire some people and expand our team a little bit long term. And it's clear it's a model that you can do that in. So, yeah, I think it's going to be the future. I think more people like us are going to pop up and succeed and win. I couldn't do what I do without the traditional media, without the New York Times and the Washington Post and Fox News, who are doing a ton of this original reporting and giving me the columnists whose stuff I'm sort of speaking to and aggregating about and that sort of thing. But um, I think we are making it a more healthy and kind of diverse ecosystem. And I think that's a good thing for the country, for sure. Well, I agree with that. And I think uh, the, the the actual subscription model itself works for us as well. We're brand new. We're about eight months in. Uh, but that is how we plan on monetizing our future journalists and hiring more reporters and things of that nature, too. So let's just say again, I had you booked for 45 minutes. I'm way over that. So I appreciate your time. and. I really am very impressed with you as an individual and even more so with your platform. I think you do a great job of nonpartisan reporting. I love the idea of educating the audience specific to both sides of the story because it is truly unique and I haven't seen anyone else out there doing that. So I wish you nothing but continued success in 2023 and beyond and keep doing what you're doing, Isaac, because uh, it seems to be working and our democracy and our our citizens need it. So thanks a lot for what you're doing. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the time. And yeah, let's keep in touch. Maybe you can teach me how to run this freaking thing at some point. That'd be nice. <laughs> now I can do. Cheers, <laughs> man. Right, man. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.